0: Welcome back to the program. It has been argued that more evil is committed in the name of banality than purpose. Certainly a look at our current golden age of television confirms that. Don Draper, Walter White, and Tony Soprano never really seemed to make up their minds about being good or evil. So what's the zeitgeist of our culture that separates hero from villain? And what's different today than, say, in the 90s or even the 50s? Who better to ask than Chuck Klosterman? the ethicist for the New York Times Magazine, and the best-selling author of seven previous books, including Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, it is my pleasure to welcome Chuck Klosterman back to this program to talk about his newest work, I Wear the Black Hat. Chuck Klosterman, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's good to be back. Great to have you here. I want to talk first about this idea that, that you put forth that really relates to the movie Star Wars. The idea okay. that, that when we're young, we think Luke Skywalker is the hero. Later on, Han Solo becomes more appealing. And as we get older and wiser, Darth Vader starts looking a lot better.
1: Well, you know, uh, I, I think that was an a, a, a easy way to sort of encapsulate maybe what motivated me to uh, write a book about this topic, which is that I think uh, the 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 ability to relate or the, maybe the desire to relate to someone who is conventionally perceived as a villain is actually a reflection of the maturation, maturation process. I think that when you're very young, you know you, you aspire to, to be heroic, and it doesn't seem implausible. It seems like some, a choice you can make and a life you can live. You can be the Luke Skywalker of your world. You get a little older. You become a teenager. And the idea of the meaning of identity starts uh, informing the way you look at things. So a character like Han Solo, who is fundamentally good but sort of has the trappings of a bad person or an anti-authority person, becomes very desirable to someone in that period of their life. Um, you know, maybe they still in their mind associate themselves as being, a, you know, like a good nine-year-old kid, but now they're fourteen and they want people to see them as dangerous. But then you become an adult. Maybe you rewatch the movie for the first time in a decade. It seems like a very different film. The character of Darth Vader starts to seem like the only essential character, the person who's really important. And this is not just because uh, the three prequel movies uh, basically prove this. Even just watching the original three films, one got that sense. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, you know, you know, why is that? Why did that happen? Is Is it? And I think it might have to do with this, is that while I said when you're young, being heroic seems aspirational, as an adult, it starts to seem impossible. The idea of being a heroic figure seems like something that you only sort of dream about as a kid. And the villainous person, the character who is the antagonist, starts seeming more realistic to you. It starts seeming closer to the person you are, because in your mind, you know that You might be capable of really problematic acts. Maybe you don't do them. Maybe your status in life allows you to avoid doing something that you find morally problematic. But you can understand how someone could. And that's why villains, who are often described as seeming so interesting, are actually coming across to people as real. And they use the word interesting to replace the word authentic.
0: How much of it is that as we get older and as life takes its hard knocks repeatedly, that we stop seeing things as we often do in our youth in such manichean terms? Suddenly we realize that shades of gray are much more real than, than black and white.
1: Well, I think it, it, it has maybe just to do with the understanding that um, we did not form ourselves. That we know of things about our life and the people, and other lives, the people around us, that, oh, you know, the way they were raised had a factor. Where they came from played a role. Uh, how much good fortune or good luck that they experienced. Um, you know, how ambitious they were. The profession they went into. We start realizing that the way people act is not some sort of mechanical thing, which I think is maybe how a, a small child sees it. You know, that there, you can be a good boy or a bad boy, a good girl or a good girl. You're a bad girl, and you sort of make this decision in a vacuum. But as you get older, you start realizing that we can't really control how we think. And as a consequence, we can't control how we feel. There it makes re- us more sympathetic, I guess, to the kind of person that the rest of the world might seem as
0: villainous. There really is a change also, and as we grow, things that we hated, things that we thought were evil at, at various times... We suddenly outgrow. I mean, it's certainly true in some of the stories, some of the essays in your book, particularly with regard to music or sports figures.
1: Yeah, um, sports is always a really easy example for this. You know, um, uh, when you're uh, younger in your life, maybe, you know, the athlete that you love the most um, seems almost like a caricature of what a good athlete is supposed to be like, you know, the good role model, really upstanding person. Um, and it, as, you, as you get to a different phase, you start seeing a fakeness in that, or at least you're skeptical of that uh, sort of uh, the purity of appearance. And suddenly people who, uh, you know, maybe the mainstream media might frame as a troublemaker, like a Richard Sherman type character or whatever, seems more realistic to you. Because, uh, I just think, I mean, I keep going back to the same point, but I think that there's a real uh, desire from people now, uh, and there always has been, but it's been amplified with the rise of technology, for grains of authenticity in their life, that so much of our life is mediated and constructed. Well, we're, we're really just, you know, sort of uh, yearning for things that to us feel kind of uh, uh, inherently true.
0: It used to be also as a culture that in, in some ways we defined ourselves, we defined groups, we defined parts of the culture by who we hated, who we thought was evil. That's changed as we've become more bifurcated in so many ways.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, uh, it's, you, you sort of talked earlier in the introduction about the idea of someone sort of identifying themselves um, as bad or good, and, and um you know that's not really the person who makes the decision. It's really the rest of society who makes these calls. And people when sort of you know uh, existing within the agency of their own life, aren't making clear decisions about you know their morality. I mean in terms of of you know uh, how uh, uh what we use to sort of uh serve as icons in a society, I mean, a lot of that has to do with what medium they exist within. Um, you know uh, when I write, you write a book about villains people want to talk to you about the idea of the anti-hero this is a, like, one of the first things people want to ask you about the rise of the anti-hero um, in a sense that has kind of always existed you know like in literature mm-hmm. you saw examples of this in the 19th century in the 18th century the idea that, that the main character might not be wholly good um, but then you saw it in film in the 1970s when the auteur movement happened and the Godfather films came out, uh, a that, that, that string of really interesting Jack Nicholson films from the early 70s. They kind of adopted this idea that maybe the, the hero is uh, actually someone who in day-to-day life would seem like a problem. Uh, in the 70s, and especially the 80s and 90s, this became the center of pop music, especially hard rock, metal, and hip-hop. That if you wanted to exist in these mediums, you almost had to consciously adopt uh, the armor of someone who was villainous. And then it finally happened in television in the 90s. The, the example I often use is that when David Chase was uh, you know, creating The Sopranos, he had this great fear that people would not accept a character like Tony Soprano that they would see a character who was supposed to be the center of the show, but who did murder people, who was a criminal, and that they just simply wouldn't accept this. And as it turns out, not only did they accept it, they loved it. They just embraced this character in a way he could have never anticipated. And now, when you look at high-end television whether it's Mad Men or The Wire or Breaking Bad or Orange is the New Black, any of the shows that are perceived as sort of being the most sophisticated, it is rare that the main character is wholly good. And in fact, the show does not seem uh, uh, plausible if that is the case.
0: In many ways, it's a pushback from a period of time that we went through in the 90s where there was an obsessive kind of focus on political correctness. We've now gone in the other direction, and one wonders if there's something cyclical to the nature of what we're talking about.
1: Uh, Well, you know, I was in college from 1990 to 1994, and that really was the apex of the political correctness Argument. I mean, the issues have already always existed, they still exist now, but certainly in terms of just using that phrase, which now seems a bit archaic, mm-hmm. talking about things being politically correct, that was the height of that sort of debate. You couldn't really have a, a conversation about the culture without it. And then as a consequence, there was all this interesting pushback. Um, uh, the, the example I kind of point to is Andrew Dice Clay, who was at the height of his success during that period. Uh, was successful in a way that, you know, kind of in an arena rock way that comedians really had never been before, solely by being this person who was sort of expressed the language that seemed to be being removed from the culture. And all of a sudden, these people who were like, I can't talk freely at work anymore, I'll get fired. Here's this person who is simply doing and saying all the things that, uh, that, that have been taken away from me Even if they're not funny, I just appreciate the idea. That was also the time when Two Live Crew, the Florida hip hop band, um, was sort of at its height, and uh, you know that was just essentially a collection of nursery rhymes filled with profanity. But you can't get any more profane than Two Live Crew. Every line essentially is profanity. It's almost like you know, profanity per square inch or something. They're trying to put you. Know, uh, and so, so even though when people discuss the idea of the culture coarsening, which I think is a very viable thing to argue, hip hop and stand up comedian and stand up comedy weirdly sort of hit that wall. You know, twenty five years ago, that we've never really had things that adversarial language wise since the nineties.
0: Is that because? we've defined downward in some respects, what constitutes that kind of vulgarity or what constitutes, quote unquote, evil within the context of that kind of entertainment?
1: Well, within I mean, specifically with this kind of entertainment, you know, we're talking about really kind of, um, you know, like language based things. Um, One thing that has changed is that in that war over political correctness that we were talking about in the early 90s, it's pretty clear which side ended up winning. Um, at this point now, uh, the thinking in society has changed. That if something is personally offensive to you, you can argue that it's collectively offensive. That this idea that, well, if you don't like it, that's you know that's your own problem, that's kind of been removed. So I guess what you're saying probably is true. Um, it's harder to be the, the kind of person who is working and talking on the edge without an immense blowback from that. Because the idea is that, you know, if, 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 if anyone can find this problematic, uh, there's going to almost be a, you know, uh, like a, an army of people on Twitter trying to stop this from happening or stop this from going forward or take away your livelihood, however you want to look at it.
0: In part, because there's so much of that, exactly what you're talking about, there's a certain banality to it that somehow impacts the debate that we're talking about.
1: Uh that's true. I think that people make their decisions about public figures now in terms of their value um before they really know much about what the person literally represents. Um it's so acceptable now to just sort of uh basically exist in a world where uh the media you consume uh just supports your pre-existing biases. So if you're a real conservative person Um, You can, uh, you know, just watch Fox News and maybe just follow people on Facebook who agree with you. If you're a real liberal person, you can just watch MSNBC and you can just follow the sections of Twitter that sort of silo uh, the ideas that you support. You can almost live without having any kind of real um, anecdotal or conversational conflict. Uh, And that's it does become banal because. That uh, all becomes meaningless it 's just filler you 've made up your decision before interacting with any idea
0: and coming back to something you touched on before and you and you talk about this in a number of the essays in in the book, The Arena of sports, and what 's different about that, for example
1: well, you know when you you're trying to isolate the idea of what makes a villain on a certain level, sports makes it more complicated because you know. Villainy is totally accepted for without any other reason besides these two teams are playing. If you live in Dallas, you can hate the New York Giants. If you live in New York, you can hate the Boston Red Sox just because uh, you know it's kind of structured that way. What I was more interested in are the kinds of athletes who sort of transcend that relationship uh, and particularly uh, try to adopt uh, the trappings of Villainy. For their own benefit, the clearest example, and the one I write about the most in the book, is sort of the Oakland Raiders throughout the 1960s and 1970s. Mm-hmm. How uh, you know Al Davis, the owner of that franchise, saw a real benefit in uh, you know not just the obvious, like wearing the black hat, like being like like putting themselves in this position where they had an adversarial relationship with how the league operated with every other team. Because what that did is it allowed them to sign players who uh, sort of viewed the Raider organization as very separate. That their behavior off the field didn't matter. Uh, The problems that other franchises saw in their uh, sort of playing style or their ability, that was removed. And because of that, they felt much closer to the institution. and That gave them a real edge.
0: One of the things that we see in that, and I think it relates to some of these television characters we touched on and, and the culture in general, is that we are much more fascinated with those characters, those people that create a little bit of fear in us.
1: Well, you know, uh, a, that, that's true, and there's lots of reasons why that could be. I mean, you know, it's, all of this to a degree is speculative, but, you know, as uh, it's, 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 a, it's a, you just bring up an interesting point, because when you think about it, um, in in broadest terms every generation is a little, little safer than the one before it they they you know like uh that that uh you know the crime goes up and goes down in various places but for the most part we live in a safer world a less barbaric world you go back you know people living now as opposed to 150 years ago there's really no comparison about the amount of danger that would be uh you know in their life the idea of getting into a bar fight happens so much less now than it did in the '50s or '60s. You know that was, you know, um, and because of that, you know, maybe people sort of uh, miss that element of fear. The fear kind of reminds them that they are alive. So when they see a fictional character who seems dangerous, they can kind of project themselves into that fictional world for thirty minutes or for an hour and sort of feel the thing that they lost from the world actually improving kind of a strange paradox
0: how does that relate i wonder to kind of populist views in the culture today and in some sense some of the characters we talked about some of the television shows we talked about and even as it relates to the world of sports there's this disparity between an elitist view on one side and a more populist view on the other
1: well, you know, the TV shows we talked about, technically, are not popular. Look correct. I mean, you know, you look at a show like Mad Men, which uh, is certainly the most dominant television show in terms of how it is covered by the media. That if you're going to read about television in the New Yorker or in the New York uh. Times or sort of in any kind of, um, you know, uh, what, any kind of website that views itself as being sort of a, um, a high-end uh, literary publication, that's the show you're going to see. Yes, the audience is a fraction of, you know, any episode of CSI or, or you know, or, or Hawaii Five O or any of these shows that almost have no imprint in the media outside of people talking about uh, their ratings. So how does that affect villainy? Well, uh, what it might mean is that, uh, in a way, I'm talking about ideas that seem normative, but only to a certain kind of person. That this idea of the antihero sort of being the dominant force, uh, certainly in, in, in uh, modern television and modern film, maybe that only applies to people who take these things really seriously. And maybe the casual consumer still has sort of, for lack of a better term, the old idea of what is good and what is bad, you know. But it's here to deal. It's like I'm writing a book. These are personal essays. I'm kind of working from my own experience. So I can in no way try to predict how people feel. All I can really do is say, I'm having this experience in life. I find these things interesting. Maybe you'll find them interesting too. Like that's, you know, I, I, my work is never an attempt to try to persuade people to think like me or to prove something that they didn't know was real. It's just sort of like, this is interesting. This is fun. This is a kind of intellectual entertainment. Maybe you'll like it too.
0: Maybe the populist version of, of all of this are some of the reality television shows that we've seen over the past several years.
1: Well, reality shows are also, like sports, well-positioned to create this dynamic. Um, you know, there's a, you can go on the Internet and you can find this YouTube clip of, of women on reality shows saying the phrase, I'm not here to make friends. That became a very popular thing to say. Like, it's a cliche thing you say in a reality show. The, re- the program Survivor uh, might be the greatest example of this, where these people are placed on an island, voting each other off, and certain characters will overtly say, I'm going to be the villain of the season, or I'm going to be seen as the villain of this season. Um, you know, people always criticize reality television. Sometimes I do as well. It's sort of seen as this almost like, like, a, like the junk food version of entertainment. But one thing that it does and this is really from its inception, way back from the beginning of the real world in 1991 all the way up till now, the idea that reality programs synthesize and boil down sort of the central problems in in life and make them very straightforward and very easy to digest. And, And in a sense, this is meaningful because the boiling down process makes us see what we're really talking about when we seem to be having much more complicated conversations about interpersonal you know, reality, when we're talking about a TV show like Mad Men or The Wire, we're talking about the interpersonal dynamics, fundamentally we're still talking about the same things that you're seeing on The Bachelor. Like, that's really the core of what you know, human problems
0: are. And really, coming back to it, sports <clears throat> is the penultimate example of that, because in a world that is increasingly complex, and more nuanced every day, and and more involved every day in the degree to which it's changing. The simplicity of sports and and the good and bad nature of it is arguably what makes it so appealing and what makes it such a growth industry. Well, I mean,
1: it's it's not just the black and white nature of it. It It is kind of the really heavily enforced ethics of the rules. I mean, whenever I talk to someone who's like, I'm a sports writer, too, and I talk to someone who doesn't follow sports at all, they're very confused why anybody would like it's very easy for the non-sportsman to be completely baffled by the popularity of pro football or these things. What I always try to describe to them is that, you know, I don't really understand my own life. like i don't understand how the world works it doesn't seem like the rules apply the things i understand are so often disproven at least in and like the structure of an nba game i know the rules matter and i know that the outcome will be clear you know sports are the only meritocracy that really works you know there's nobody you you, you can't succeed in major league baseball uh, through means outside of being good at baseball so I think that, that, yes, what you're talking about is totally true, that we're able sort of to feel a, uh, a degree of comfort. I mean, I know like Noam Chomsky or whatever would say, like, it's a, it's a sad kind of comfort. I see it as a positive comfort, that it's something that people can understand for real.
0: Chuck Klosterman, his new book is I Wear the Black Hat. Chuck, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.